Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Some of my guests, I um, reach out to me, in fact, probably 80% of my guests, but then there's people that are out there in our faith community that are doing really unique work, and I send them a message and ask them to be on the podcast, and that's our guest for this episode is Dan McClellan. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the invitation. How do we say your last name before I mess it up for the whole podcast? <laughs> uh, McClellan. McClellan. So the, yeah, my, my username on social media is a phonetic spelling of, of that name, M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N. And that's how I used to spell my last name for people as a missionary in Uruguay. Because uh, last names that begin with uh, four consonants in a row are, are a bit rough for, for many Spanish speakers. So, uh, but if I spelled it that way, they would go, McClellan. McClellan. <laughs> yep, there you go. Uh, isn't it fascinating your social media handle across all the different platforms ties to Uruguay? I love that. <laughs> and I love that it was, you're consistent with all your platforms. Yeah, when I came home from my mission, I started using that as a, as a username for accounts that I was uh, signing up for online. And I realized it was very unique. And I've only, the only place I've ever seen it other than my username and people parroting my username is uh, uh, like transliterations of Russian articles that are uh, transliterating my, somebody else who has the same last name into Russian. So I, I, that's the only other time it comes up. <laughs> that's correct. Yeah. Um, listeners, I just read a little bit about Dan. Dan's married. He has three daughters. He's in his early 40s. He lives in Utah. Um, he's an active Latter-day Saint. He holds a bachelor's degree from Brigham Young, a couple master's degree, um, a doctorate degree, and he may talk about those. I, as I was preparing for this podcast, I read the Faith Matters podcast, a write-up. This is a podcast that was done several months ago. And I'll just steal that from my friends at Faith Matters. Hope that's okay. Um, Dan is a Bible scholar, began sharing his insights and scholarship on, in, on TikTok in 2021. And he now has over half a million followers and began racking up millions of views, as I mentioned, hundreds of thousands of followers. One of the reasons people seem to resonate with Dan's content is that he makes traditionally difficult and obscure topics extremely accessible. If you want to watch any of his YouTube, any of his videos, you'll see what we mean. But even those are pretty unfamiliar with the words of the Old Testament, the New Testament, be able to immediately gain helpful and fascinating um, new understanding from Dan's videos. Dan believes that scripture should never be weaponized and that good scholarship can help us understand how to use scripture in a healthier way. And from what I sense, that's something that's really resonated with your platform. And listeners, Dan's on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and TikTok. I think those are five with that username. And we'll link to all those as well as an about me so that you can connect with Dan's content. The purpose of this podcast is for you, if, it, if it's interesting for you to connect with Dan's content. I think it's terrific content. And often I'll use this platform just simply to connect my listeners with your work. So um, I'll just kind of turn it over. You could talk a little bit about your education background. I didn't say where you went and I didn't say what you study, but it might be interesting <laughs> for our listeners to hear a little bit about that. And I know you worked for the church for 10 years 
Mm-hmm. Um, you could talk a little bit about what you did there and why you pivoted away from that and what you're doing now. So I'll just turn it over to you, Dan. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> I, a question I get a lot is how I got into biblical studies. And uh, it happened shortly after I was baptized as a member of the church. I was baptized in September of 2000 when I was 20 years old. So I didn't know that. Convert Interesting. Yeah. Um, and... Shortly after I got baptized, uh, my bishop, this was in the Plano Ninth Ward, said, we want to get you prepared to go on a mission. And I was like, yeah, I heard about missions. This sounds like a phenomenal opportunity. I would love to do that, but you know, there's no way I can afford that. And he said, well, we've already had several members offer to pay for the whole thing for you, so don't worry about that. Um, so I was able to prepare to go on a mission. I, sent my, I was baptized September 9th, 2000. Sent my papers in September 10th, 2001. The next day, the whole world changed. Wow. Uh, I, I left for my mission the middle of December of that year, uh, went to Montevideo, Uruguay. And uh, between getting baptized and leaving on my mission, I realized that I had a lot of ground to make up in terms of preparation as a missionary. I didn't do primary, I didn't do uh, Sunday school, I didn't do. Uh, any of the uh, seminary or anything like that. So I realized I was way behind when it came to the scriptures. So I committed to read the whole standard works before I left uh, for my mission and was able to do that. And then some, and, and then got into the mission field and was like, I, I think I'm ahead of most of the other missionaries out here. Um, but I, I fell in love with studying the scriptures and particularly uh, out in the mission field, a member gave me a, uh, a copy of a Bible dictionary in Spanish and then a translation of the Bible in Spanish that had the Apocrypha in it. And I, my favorite thing in the world to read was the Gospels. But then the Apocrypha really spoke to me as well. I love the history, particularly of the books of uh, First and Second Maccabees. And I just wanted to know more. There was just this entire world behind all these texts of which I just felt um, inadequately familiar. And I just wanted to know more. And uh, in that Bible dictionary, I found a chart that had the ancient Hebrew alphabet and the modern Latin equivalents. And I thought... With this, if I had a Hebrew text, I could at least approximate how it sounded. And I didn't know that's called transliteration, but that's what I started doing. And uh, I fell in love with studying these languages. For me, languages are kind of like a puzzle to solve. And, uh, and so I had always been fascinated by, by ancient languages. And now I was like, this might be an opportunity to actually start learning ancient languages. And I, so I tried to teach myself Hebrew and Greek and just failed miserably, mostly because I was serving a full-time mission. And so didn't have time to, to be focused on that kind of stuff. But I, I heard about a new program that was going to be starting up or that had recently started up at BYU Ancient Near Eastern Studies. And I thought, I have already been kicked out of the University of Northern Colorado. I have a muscular 0.29 GPA uh, (laughs) that I'm dragging around with me. But maybe a convert return missionary, they'll be (laughs) merciful. And uh, so I actually applied from the mission field shortly before the end of my mission. And, um, And I'm pretty sure they laughed at me when they received my application, but I did not get into to BYU. Uh, and I came back home. I did some, uh, community college, a, a local community college called, um, Collin County community college. It's now known as Collin college. Um, 
<clears throat> Adam Miller, I believe, is uh, is still a professor there. Uh, I didn't know him at the time. And uh, and then I tested out of a bunch of Spanish classes through BYU's Visiting Students Summer Semester Program. And, and an admissions counselor at the time said, you only need 30 hours to transfer and you can ask them to just look at your last 30 hours. And so I had a 4.0. So I, I basically waltzed in the back door at BYU, <laughs> uh, the, a door they have since uh, uh, shut and locked and thrown away the key <laughs> to. But um I did ancient Near Eastern studies at BYU and emphasized biblical Hebrew and did a minor in classical Greek. Uh, and then um, I talked my wife into taking uh, the two of us and our nine-month-old daughter to England to do a master's degree in Jewish studies at the University of Oxford, uh, where I, I had a wonderful time. She did not so much. Uh, it's, it's a long story, but um, my memories of that time are better and different. Uh, from hers. But uh, then we came back to the States and we moved up to Washington State. We I did another master's degree just across the border at a university called Trinity Western University in lovely Langley, British Columbia, which is just outside of Vancouver. It's actually right next to where the Vancouver Temple is. Um, and uh, after that, I uh, applied to go into PhD programs and I got accepted to go back to Oxford to do the DPhil there, but they didn't offer me any funding. And so I was kind of up a Creek. Uh, didn't know what was going to happen if my academic career was over. Uh, and I managed to come across, uh, work in, uh, scripture translation. I had made a, a friend at a, uh, an academic conference I was presenting at once, uh, someone named Todd Harris, who was a uh, manager of scripture translation at the time and, and said, Hey, we, we have a process that we use for evaluating non-English translations of the Bible for other languages. And we'd like someone with your expertise to help us out. Uh, and that was at a meeting in, I think 2010. And I didn't hear from him again for a couple of years. But after uh, losing this opportunity to go do my PhD, I ran into Todd again at an airport rather fortuitously. And he asked what I was doing. And I said, uh, I'm waiting tables at a country club so that I can play free golf. <laughs> um, and he said, oh, we can find something for you. So I came on as an intern in January of 2013. Uh, in scripture translation, and a few months later was offered a full-time position as a scripture translation supervisor. So for the last decade, uh, I've been working mostly at church headquarters when I wasn't working from home. Initially, they had me working mostly from home. And then during COVID, obviously, we went back to working from home. But I've been supervising scripture, uh, core music, and temple translation projects in a number of different languages. Uh, I've been sent all around the world to many places I didn't even know existed until I got the assignment to go to said place uh, and got to work with just fascinating and wonderful and humble and incredible people uh, from the islands of the Pacific to Japan and Korea uh, to Malaysia, uh, places in South America, places all over Europe. Uh, I've had a wonderful time. Uh, and during COVID, I. Uh, <clears throat> well, actually, no. Backtrack a little bit. I got, uh, I, I went, I overshot what I'm supposed to be talking about a little bit. So, in the middle of this, uh, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine from the academic world named Francesca Stavrakopoulou, who was the head, uh, at the time, was the head of the theology and religion department at Exeter University, 
uh, was asking me how things were going and um, asked if I was planning to go on to do a PhD. And I said, I, I tried a few times to apply. I got accepted to some places, never got enough funding. And she said, well, I, uh, and so I told her, I, I figured my academic career was over, but she said, um, we have a remote program you can do through Exeter University. You just write a dissertation. And uh, I managed to scratch together some funding for this, mostly through uh, BYU's, uh, now I'm going to forget what they call it, Religious Education Dissertation Grant. I think is what it was called, which is a program I'm pretty sure they're still doing, but it basically offers a limited amount of funding to uh, doctoral students who are writing dissertations uh, in fields related to religious education. And so um, that was a, a, an incredible blessing. Uh, I was accepted to the program. I was given the adequate funding and was able to complete my PhD between late 2015 and early 2020 was supposed to fly out to Exeter to defend my dissertation uh, in April of 2020, and uh, uh -oh. about four weeks beforehand had to cancel that uh, uh, that flight and those hotels, and that was really frustrating. So uh, I defended my dissertation from this very seat. Uh, I had a shirt and tie on, and then um, sweatpants and slippers. So, and then instead of going out to the pub for uh, a dinner. And, uh, and drinks with the whole crowd afterwards, I went and did the dishes. So <laughs> it was a little anticlimactic for me, <laughs> but I have since been able to make up that trip out to, out to Exeter. So uh, I earned my, my doctoral degree in 2020 um, and <clears throat> shortly after COVID started. Uh, and shortly after that, I started to see on Twitter and on Facebook where I had a bit of a, uh, a social media presence, not any kind of following at all, but I was on those social media sites. I started to see people sharing TikTok videos that were addressing issues related to the Bible and the study of religion. And, and I thought that TikTok was for disrupting uh, Republican presidential campaigns over in Korea and for dancing and, and things like that. I didn't know much at all about TikTok, but I saw these videos and I thought, there doesn't seem to be uh, a referee over there. There doesn't seem to be anybody calling balls and strikes. And I thought this might be a need that could be filled. So I got an account and I just lurked for a little while just to see the lay of the land, what kind of content was being produced that was related to my um, area of specialization. And, um, and I decided, oh, I'm, I might as well wade into this and, and start sharing my, uh, my perspective uh, on these things as, as a credentialed scholar of, uh, of the Bible and religion. And to my surprise, uh, there was a lot of interest and Initially, I started up hoping to be dispassionate. Um, part of my uh, education, particularly uh, in writing my doctoral dissertation, was in the cognitive science of religion and also cognitive linguistics. So I've worked a lot with why people believe what they believe and how they connect what they believe with how they talk about it. And um, so I've, I've worked a lot with this. So I understand quite well why it is that people say the things that they do in, in public spaces. And so I wanted to approach it as, as someone who was not there to take sides and to say this team's right and this team's wrong. Um, but mostly to say, these are the data. And so do with them what you will. Uh, so I, I spent a lot of time combating misinformation, uh, but 
I think someone who who follows my content for a while, and, and I get these comments all the time, they don't know how to pigeonhole me. They they you know they watch a few videos and think, oh, he's on this side, and then I'll post a video that that contradicts that, and they're like, I thought you were on our team or or something like that. And and I, I've I've said in a few videos very early in my tenure on TikTok that at some point or another, no matter how much we get along, no matter how much you enjoy my content, I'm going to say something that just infuriates you <laughs> because I'm, I'm trying to the, the best of my ability. I'm not perfect at it. Nobody really can be, but I'm trying to the best of my ability to, uh, to just call balls and strikes. And sometimes that serves the interest of one side and sometimes that serves the interests of another side. Um, but <clears throat> I've, uh, one thing I've always said, and, and people have pointed out, well, uh, I have a motto data over dogma. And that's, that's actually the name of the podcast that I started up a couple months ago with, uh, with a friend of mine, the data over dogma podcast. But, and that, and that is basically shorthand for saying, I don't accept dogma on my social media channels. That's not an argument. I want to see the data. Uh, and we're going to call out dogma as such, uh, when we see it. And that makes, uh, that makes the, the debates in the back and forth a lot easier for me because there's an awful lot that people will argue that is just based on on dogma. But sometimes people say, well, your pretense to this objectivity, that's the dogma as well. And and you know, you support this, that, and the other. And and I acknowledge that these are shades of gray and nobody can be perfect uh, at this. But what I have said is that to the degree possible, I'm going to try to prioritize and front the data. Uh, all other things being equal, I will give the benefit of the doubt to the less powerful, less privileged individuals or groups. And that bubbles to the surface quite a lot uh, on my channel because so much of the dogma that is being um, tossed around on social media is precisely about structuring power over and against uh, less powerful, marginalized, minoritized groups, uh, or sometimes trying to structure power in their favor. Um, and so the, I, I talk uh, frequently about identity politics, and particularly right-wing authoritarian identity politics, what I, which I find incredibly corrosive and which I find to be one of the largest problems, one of the largest facilitators of the social ills that we are experiencing uh, these days within our Latter-day Saint community, within the broader American, broader English-speaking global communities. Uh, and so a lot of my content try, combats, pushes back against right-wing authoritarianism. Uh, but not all of it. There are things that I come across where I have to say, the Bible does say this. It's pretty clearly um, you know, condemning this or approving this or endorsing that. Um, and Sometimes that is something that uh, folks on my side of the aisle like to hear, and other times it's something they don't like to hear. But I try to be open and honest that I'm trying to put the data over the dogma with that one caveat. All other things being equal, I will give the benefit of the doubt to the less powerful group. Uh, it's fascinating. Just I've never heard a story like this, Dan. <laughs> and... Um... You know, you younger listeners that are wondering how your life is going to work out, your career, especially if you're on an academic road, wondering how this is all going to work out. There's a story within a story here of of just, you know, your road to get a PhD and understanding the Bible that's now 
you know, brought you into a career that's, you know, um, in social media and bringing content to social media. And I assume if I talk to your 30-year-old self about what you're doing at 40-whatever, this would be a surprise. <laughs> and I think there's a story within there, but you've just been kind of following the different doors that have opened for you and using your gifts and talents. And I think there's a beautiful story within that of writing your own story, listeners, and um, and sometimes hearing another story that um, gives you hope and perspective of how to write your story. Um, talk about our, you can go anywhere you want to go. I've kind of let my guests run with this, but you could talk about examples of, you know, I love, and we will link to your podcast, Data Over Dogma, because I've seen that on social media. It looks like a terrific podcast. Are there examples where the Bible is weaponized in a way that the data doesn't support that to support someone's, and you could even define the term dogma. I'm not sure I know exactly. I understand data because I lean towards, as a marketer, the market research, the heavy analytical side to help me as a marketer make better decisions based on the data we're learning from consumers. That's my sort of my business expertise. But so I understand that side, but dogma, you could, you could go wherever you want with this. Yeah. The, one of the things that I, uh, that I frequently point out is that I'm not a fan of definitions and that, and that's something that I, that I learned through a master's degree and then a, and then a doctoral dissertation studying cognitive linguistics is definitions tend to try to delineate categories even though as humans, our minds are designed to, not really designed, but our minds learn, develop, use categories without boundaries. They kind of, they have fuzzy boundaries where membership in a category can be debatable uh, or can be unclear or can be not total, partial membership, stuff like that. And so def definitions tend to try to draw lines around those things and say, it's either all in or all out. So I, I try not to define, but I, I, I do describe. And, uh, and I would describe dogma as things that, that are based on things like identity politics, ideas that become embedded and become enforced only to the degree that they serve boundary maintenance or they serve power structures, things that are not built upon uh, data, uh, evidence, things that can't be demonstrated. And so, for instance, when people uh, want to argue about what the Bible says, something that I'm fond of pointing out is that the Bible is not univocal, uh, meaning it does not speak with a single unified, consistent voice. And across the world of public discourse about the Bible, the univocality of the Bible is presupposed by the overwhelming majority of people who talk about it. So uh, people who appeal to passages over here, I'm going to appeal to Paul and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Isaiah, and you tie these things all together and they have to mean X. And I point out, well, these are five different authors writing in vastly different time periods and even in different languages for different reasons, two different audiences. And they frequently are disagreeing with each other. And so the notion that we can take all these disparate passages from the Bible and just say they must all represent a single truth or a single perspective or a single voice, that's not supported by any data. So that's something that I would call a dogma. Uh, and so as a result, as a dogma, it's something that I don't um, 
I don't allow as an argument on my channel. So if somebody wants to argue, well, the Bible says this, then they need to show me why, or they need to show me data that supports identifying what Paul says as in agreement with what the authors of Deuteronomy say. Uh, we don't just presuppose that on my channel. And, and sometimes we get kind of deep in the weeds on, on that. It can get very complex and it can get very convoluted, but <clears throat> but I, I try to do as clear a job as I can of, of distinguishing what I think can be supported by the data from those things that uh, became doctrine, became authoritative, became widespread for no other reason than that they support a given identity politics or given attempt at boundary maintenance or a given structuring of power. and. Uh, and I've heard a lot of people say that it totally revolutionizes the way they look at the Bible in the absence of the assumption of univocality. And, and I would agree. Uh, I think once you, you tear that down, this assumption that everybody has to agree with everyone else across all the cross biblical authorship, then it opens up so many, so many avenues and it makes things messier and makes things a lot more complex. Uh, but I think that's the way the world is. Um, and so I, I, I think it also makes for a more dynamic and productive exegesis, hermeneutic, a, a, more, uh, a much more robust way to engage with the scriptures. I, I think someone who sits through Sunday school in the LDS church week after week after week will get the impression that we already know everything that the Bible says, that all the scriptures say. There's not really any mystery in there. It's all locked down pretty tight, but if we already know everything that's in the text and everything that the texts mean, there's nowhere for us. There's no reason for us to be engaging them. They're not going to surprise us. They're not going to change our mind about anything. They're not going to make us uncomfortable. They're not going to change us. Uh, and, and something that I've always insisted is that the more uncomfortable the text makes you, the more it surprises you. Uh, the more it can change you, the more you can learn things that will help you change your behavior. And, uh, and I think that makes the scriptures a lot more useful, a lot more meaningful, and uh, a lot more dynamic and a lot more flexible. So, uh, it, so I, I, I suppose there, there's, a, there's a secular dimension and there can also be a devotional dimension to, uh, to what I'm doing. I don't... I don't occupy that devotional dimension on my social media channels, but I know, I know there are a lot of folks who, who find value in that, in putting that lens on, on what I'm doing. And, you know, when I get up to teach in Sunday school, which I did all last year, um, I try to bring those lenses together and show how it can be looking past the dogma and trying to understand the data a lot better and the text on their own terms and in their own original settings, or at least as close as we can get to them makes the text, I, I think come alive a lot more. And sometimes it means we set this text aside as outdated and problematic, something that is not for us anymore, something that we need to, um, we need to overcome or leave in the past. Sometimes it means that other times it means we find unexpected value and unexpected insight in a place where we thought there was nothing new to learn or nothing of any interest to us today. So, um, 
I, I think there's, there's a lot of value in that. And even if someone ends up returning to their dogma, whatever it may be, hopefully that journey of, of dismantling it, deconstructing it, if you will, um, is a growing learning experience for them. And, and, you know, we all have our dogmas. We all have our things that we accept because they serve our interests. Uh, but when those things have been interrogated and deconstructed and reconstructed and we understand them inside and out, I think it makes, hopefully it makes us much more, it makes them much more useful and, um, and productive for us. And, and hopefully we look past the tendency to try to weaponize that stuff and utilize it for purposes of structuring power, boundary maintenance, and things like that. And I was going to try to tie this back into the other part of your question. And now I realize I totally forgot what the other part of your question was. I did too. <laughs> <laughs> I've just enjoyed your answer and imagine being in your Sunday school class. Um, talk about if, you know, I can't remember what I, I thought you did a good job of answering that earlier. You talked about, I'm going to, and I'm using, I'm making up words here because I can't remember what way you said it. I'm going to err on the side of, of marginalized people. Um, give, mm -hmm. If there's, I'm going to come down on the side here that there's not, you know, I'm obviously going to come down on the side of the teachings of the Bible first. I think you said that, but if there's grace to be given, I'm going to come down on the side of helping support marginalized people. Um, even if that means I've got to go head first into the dogma around those groups of people and elevate their voices. I don't know if you want to talk more about that. This platform obviously tries to elevate the voices of marginalized people mm -hmm. um, so we can better support them by hearing their voices. But I don't know if you want to go in that direction or um, identity politics. I think you talked about, especially you're concerned about the right wing and some of the, I don't know the right vocabulary, some of the challenges that that segment of our political world is bringing into um, our lives. And so that's a political statement, listeners. Some of you may not be, you. some of you may be in that partner. We usually don't bring up politics too much, but I think it's appropriate for to talk about that kind of a topic too. Yeah, I think um, the way I normally word that is that I, I try to prioritize the data, but all other things being equal. In other words, we're on even uh, ground, I will give the benefit of the doubt to uh, the less powerful group. And I, and I think some of the ways that this, and this bubbles to the surface in a lot of different ways in the public discourse about the Bible and religion, but I think one of the most acute issues these days uh, is that of uh, LGBTQ plus rights uh, and, and their personhood, their humanity, and particularly uh, trans folks who are, have fallen into the crosshairs of uh, a lot of our uh, partisan discourse these days, because I think some people see, see blood in the water, so to speak, and, and think that that is the rally cry that's going to help them kind of shore up their, uh, their base against um, the opponent. And there are, you know, what we call the clobber passages in the Bible, which come up all the time, Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, people bring up Romans 1, 26 and 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, uh, 1 Timothy 1, I think it's, I think it's verse 10, uh, Jude verse 7. Uh, 
as condemnatory toward homosexuality in general. And I think we have to be very, very careful parsing apart the data about this. Uh, and one of the things I, I first point out is that if we're talking about homosexuality as a sexual orientation, that that is completely absent from the Bible because that concept did not exist. The notion of sexual orientation, as we understand it today, is a development of the 19th century. Uh, our notion of sexual orientation today, and particularly homosexual orientation, did not exist anywhere within a thousand years of anyone who ever wrote a single syllable of the Bible. And so the Bible does not address homosexuality as a sexual orientation, much less condemn it. And so that's a that's a point I try to make very clear when I start off, and, and it always gets misunderstood. But if you're talking about homosexuality as a sexual orientation, it's not even um, it's not even relevant. And so right there, that I think cuts out an awful large part of the group against which people are trying to weaponize the Bible. There are an awful lot of people out there who identify as homosexual who have never engaged in any kind of same-sex intercourse. And so the Bible's not addressing them at all, but it gets weaponized against them. And so that's the the data are very clear there. The Bible just does not say a word about about them. And so that's a an initial kind of division that I, I like to make between what the Bible is saying and what the Bible isn't saying. There are a lot of folks who approach some of those clobber passages as they try to recontextualize them, reinterpret them to say, oh, well, Leviticus 18.22 and, and 20.13 are actually talking about pedophilia, or they're talking about uh, cultic uh, acts, or they're talking about sex workers or something like that. And and those those arguments have appeared in print before, but they're not really accepted by scholars, by many scholars. I don't think the data support them very much. I, I think it's clear that Places like Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13 are directly addressing uh, male same-sex intercourse, just generically. However, they're only addressing the active or the insertive role in that act. And so they are not addressing a full 50% of the people who engage uh, or the men who engage in same-sex intercourse. So that audience against which these texts are being weaponized further shrinks. Uh, and, and there are a bunch of ways to try to understand what exactly was the problem that they were addressing here. Why were they addressing this problem the way they were? Uh, and what were they afraid was going to happen? And there's a lot of debate about this because the text is not very clear. There aren't a lot of details. We just have these two passages that are using this phrase, Mishkevei Isha in Hebrew. The only two times this phrase occurs anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. There's a lot of filling in the gaps that we have to do. And some people are going to fill in those gaps a bit more charitably than others. Um, I try to fill them in as dispassionately and as objectively as I can. And based on what I think the uh, majority of scholars have come to agree on, there was, uh, there was a social hierarchy of uh, domination and of penetration that rendered it problematic for one man to subject another man to 
um, that kind of submissive sexual act. And so it was considered illicit. It was considered inappropriate. It was considered a violation of the personhood of, of this other male. Uh, and that's a hierarchy uh, doesn't really exist anymore today. At least ideally it doesn't. There are still folks who, uh, who, for whom some of these things kind of bubble to the surface. There was, um, are you familiar with David Hayward? No. He's, um, he's an evangel- ex-evangelical, I think. Uh, he's a cartoonist. He does editorial cartoons. Um, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of his... Um, the name of his... Oh, it goes by Naked Pastor. Yes, I'm familiar with that guy on Twitter. Uh, okay. So, um, <laughs> so he... he uh, published a, a cartoon on, on Twitter a handful of months ago that was just kind of poking fun at purity culture and at the way evangelicals approach sexuality and, and um, healthy sexual relationships. And he showed a, a, a man and a woman under covers and uh, one of them stops and says, wait, is woman on top biblical? And it was just, it was just a joke. Uh, but I commented, probably not. And then, um, he wanted more details on that. So I, I shared a video where I pointed out that because it was considered to be subjugating uh, uh, for a man to be on the bottom during sex, even with his own wife, uh, it was a submissive position for him to take. It was considered inappropriate because of that hierarchy of domination. Um, and so you have ancient Mesopotamian texts that say if a, if a man is on the bottom, uh, he will, uh, basically his, uh, he'll lose his, his masculinity. He won't have a masculine drive anymore. There's, uh, there's a Jewish text that says if a man is on the bottom during sex, he'll be stricken with diarrhea. Uh, there are, and, and even we have this story, uh, a lot of listeners like to hear about Lilith. They want to know more about this Lilith tradition. They keep hearing about how Lilith was Adam's first wife. And this comes from a text called the Alphabet of Ben Sirah, which comes from between 700 and 1000 CE. So not incredibly old. But in that, in that text, Lilith is Adam's first wife. And she gets upset and uh, abandons the Garden of Eden because she wants to be on top. And Adam says, it's not appropriate for you to be on top. I'm the only one who can be on top. And, and so this, this ideology, this notion that there are sexual positions that are inappropriate, given that hierarchy of, of domination, that has existed for thousands of years. And we can see it in Mesopotamia from, from 1500 BCE all the way down to uh, late antique Judaism. Uh, in uh, around 700 to 1,000 CE. And so long story short, the reason they, they don't approve of male same-sex intercourse is not because they have any idea that, that you know, God told them that's bad, but because it violates this conventionalized social hierarchy of domination that ostensibly we have moved beyond uh, today. So when we, when we look at what the rationales are for this condemnation, those rationales don't hold anymore. And so that's where I bring in my concern for the marginalized groups. There are people who take their own lives, who are killed by others, who are abused by others. There are children who 
are put into these circumstances for no other reason than their sexual orientation. And, and this notion that, well, God said it. So, you know, that's, that's the end of the story. And so there I will drill down a little deeper into the data to show the more granular we get, the more indefensible the contemporary leveraging of these texts as weapons against the LGBTQ plus communities, uh, this becomes. And, and people bring up Paul in the New Testament and uh, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Timothy wasn't written by Paul, so I usually ignore that one. But Paul had a very odd sexual ethic. Paul was celibate, wanted everybody else to be celibate thought that the main purpose of sex was prophylactic. Uh, he, he thought you should only get married if you can't hack celibacy. And if you do get married because you can't hack celibacy, you should only have enough sex to stop you from wanting to have more sex. The idea was that sexual desire was, uh, was a liability. It was something that was a product of our base fleshly nature. And the more we gave it attention, the more it was going to grow. And so you wanted to suppress it to the degree possible. Marriage was the only appropriate place for it to, um, to have any presence, but it should be as infrequent as possible and primarily for the purpose of stifling it, basically. And um, Paul didn't care about procreation. In fact, he thought that Jesus was going to come back too quickly for any of that to matter. So he told everybody, stay in whatever circumstances you are right now. If you're not married, don't get married. If you're married, don't get divorced. If you don't have kids, don't try to have kids. And so all of the arguments that people come up with for why Paul might have disapproved of same-sex intercourse uh, all have to ignore the rest of his sexual ethic because they're things that we reject today, the things we don't care about anymore. And our, our circumstances render them irrelevant. And so when people try to leverage Paul as a bludgeon against the LGBTQ plus community, I try to, again, drill down a little deeper in the data and show Paul's rationalizations are no different. You reject the rest of Paul's sexual ethic because it's no longer relevant to us. So why maintain this one piece of his sexual ethic? And as long as I've looked at it, the only reason I can come up with that makes any sense to me as a scholar of these things is that it serves structuring power. It's become an identity marker. And so it becomes an effective way of reifying or creating boundaries between who is faithful and who is not, who belongs and who doesn't, uh, who is good enough and, and who is not. And I don't think an ideology that drives children to take their own lives and that drives people to sexually and physically abuse others uh, is worth anything. Uh, as as an identity marker. I don't think that is something that is valuable as a means of measuring how much someone belongs to a group. Uh, and so I, I try to, those are, that's an issue where I will drill down deeper in the data and go into a lot more detail and be a lot more granular because it's something that is so phenomenally harmful today and because it's something that causes so much uh, pain and suffering and even death. And just like we did with slavery, 
one day we're going to move past this. We're going to abandon it, just like we abandoned the notion that the Bible um, means slavery is okay. Um, it's just a question of how long it takes for a critical mass of people to decide that the lives and the well-being of all those members of the LGBTQ plus community are more important than the utility of this identity marker. And I don't know if that will be in my lifetime, but I would like it to be. It would be very sad to me. It, I think a daughter just fell out of her bed or something upstairs. <laughs> um, it would be very sad. Um, it would be heartbreaking if more generations of youth and adults have to go through what people have to go through today um, just because it's a handy identity marker. Listeners, that was a really terrific segment. As I've followed Dan on Twitter, this is his personality. It is driven by the data and driven by the understanding, the backstory of these scriptures that sometimes be used in ways that over time, maybe we might not see them that way. And so this may be a little uncomfortable for some people to hear, um, but I've learned to try to lean into this a little bit and see if it helps me undo some of the conclusions I've made in my dogma. Um, so that was really helpful. And as I look at you on Twitter, you rarely sort of, you just go back to the facts and the story. And that's one of your gifts to our community. A couple of questions. One, do you, some would hear that and say, well, do you support church teachings that um, same-sex marriage and same-sex relationships out of church teachings? Or I don't know if you want to talk about that. Um, <laughs> um, I don't. I, so I, I'm talking about the folks who, who derive these ideologies from the Bible. Um, the LDS church leadership, I don't think I've seen them appeal to biblical texts. Uh, for their uh, the ideologies and and the the boundaries that they set, I hope those boundaries change in the future. But my my goal here is to challenge this on a more broad level, um, one that is derived from interpretation of the Bible, uh, rather than one that is derived from uh, an assertion of prophetic authority or anything like that. So, um, so I'm not I'm not challenging authority i'm not challenging uh the the church leadership uh, i am addressing the way the the bible is leveraged as a weapon and uh in the few instances where i've seen church leaders weaponize uh that rhetoric i i think i've i've tried to call it out um for instance uh it 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 doesn't really pop up much anymore True. But, uh there's, uh, I can recall something I heard over the, uh, I think it was over the general conference pulpit, uh, a leader saying that, uh, telling a story about a young man, I forget if he was going off to a mission or going off to war or going off to college or whatever, uh, but said, uh, you know, I would, I know my mom would prefer I come home in a box than unclean. And the, you know, the, the purpose of that kind of rhetoric is to just kind of escalate the importance of this. This is so important that, you know, a parent would say this, no parent would, would actually mean that. And the message that something like that communicates to many people is this is more important than your life. And if you fall short here, as people are inevitably going to do, 
your life is not worth living anymore. And this is the, these are some of the things that contribute to to youth and adults taking their own lives, which is just unspeakably tragic. Um, I would not want to be associated with any parent whose child would come home in a box and say, well, at least they didn't come home unclean. At least they're not LGBTQ+. At least they're not a trans person. Um, to be satisfied with their death uh, more than them being LGBTQ+, more than them having had a sexual encounter uh, prior to marriage or something like that. Uh, to, to think that would, that's just abominable. And so, <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not trying to, to challenge prophetic authority as much as I am trying to challenge rhetoric that places these ideologies and these identity markers uh, over and above the lives of, uh, of people inside and outside the church. That was terrific. And I knew you could handle that question. And I think what I learned from Dan's answer is that he's challenging, you know, the use of these clobber scriptures. I like that term to provide justification, which is different than our church is not really using those. I think maybe we've used them in the past, but we're, it's, I think you're talking about prophetic, you know, authority that's making statements on, um, our teachings regarding LGBT people. I don't think you're challenging that, but I think you're open like I am that things may change for this, for this community, but you're not forming advocacy or um, you're not forming a movement to change this. You're just recognizing that sometimes these scriptures get clobbered and the victims, the innocent victims are LGBTQ people. And we need to use the Bible in a way to lift their voices and, and support them and help them versus clobber them. Yeah. I uh, agreed. And, and I'm also, I, I recognize that my audience is not exclusively Latter-day Saints True. as well. And so I, I rarely tailor my content to uh, a Latter-day Saint audience, which means when I'm talking about what's going on with the Bible and these clobber passages, I'm more directly aiming this at usually evangelical or other uh, communities, evangelical is kind of a squishy term, uh, can, can mean a lot of different things, but I'm, I'm aimed at a, a larger subsection of, um, of my English speaking audience than just, uh, than just Latter-day Saints, which I know can be confusing to some people to have a, a Latter-day Saint scholar who, who almost never talks directly to Latter-day Saints. But, uh, I, w- I would say that's cause I'm a scholar who happens to be a Latter-day Saint. Uh, rather than uh, a scholar who, uh, a Latter-day Saint scholar. Yeah. Um, talk about, um, that's helpful. And that's part of, I think, your unique mission, Dan, is be pretty broad in this space. And um, I share a lot of the same pain. Um, you know, I've had, you know, I've just, it seems like listeners over the last um, five years or so, the some segments of the right have really, you use better language than I do, have really created community, common enemy intimacy is what Brene Brown talks about it is um, building fear-based ways to get community on the backs of marginalized groups. And that to me is Mm -hmm. opposite from Jesus, opposite from my read of the scriptures. And you have this unique ability to not just call it out because it's nice to call, because it's the right thing to call it out, 
but then you have this kind of fact-based ability to pull through all that, that, that narrative, um, and have people perhaps rethink. And that's what I thought is really helpful. You brought up trans people. And as our listeners know, um, sexual orientation and sexual behaviors we talked about is one thing, but, you know, being trans is another thing. And that seems to be the most in the crosshairs right now. Um, we've had a lot of trans guests on the podcast and I'm heartbroken for some of the things we've said and you keep going, you often will then go back to um, the feelings of increased suicidality. We had a father who's in a stake presidency in Boston come home, and this is triggering, but he found his trans son had died by suicide. And part of the suicide note, he was terrified about what people would were saying about people like him. And he was turning 19. And he has warrior syndrome, and he's. You could skim back if you want to listen to that podcast by um, the Martins, Cami Martin. I forgot her husband's name. That's um, their trans son Levi. So when I've thought about his obituary, Dan, and I've read his story, and his parents were brave to come on the podcast, and they actually did a terrific job of supporting him. They understood what was going on. There was actually a medical understanding for why he felt gender dysphoria than not everybody felt, but was terrified about what society said about people like him. That is so opposite from the, the, the way Jesus would talk about people. So anyway, <laughs> that's a long prelude to what does the Bible tell us about trans people? There's, there's not really much. Uh, I think <clears throat> the closest we can get in the Bible to the, a concept that uh, is parallel to what we understand today as uh, as a trans identity is um, I think discussions about eunuchs uh, who pop up a, a yeah. handful of times in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so these are people who are either uh, they were identified or assigned uh, male identity, but didn't have uh, some aspect of, of their genitalia was in align with that or people who had been castrated. Uh, sometimes that happened. Uh, there are examples of, of self castration in the ancient world. There are examples of people castrating others in order to, um, for instance, uh, make servants, uh, less likely to, um, engage in, in problematic behavior with a harem or around, the king's uh, wife or daughters or something like that. Um, and we have an interesting passage in Matthew where very similar to, to Paul's kind of prioritization of celibacy, there's a following this discussion about divorce. One of the disciples says, well, it's better for a man not to get married. And then Jesus says, some men are born eunuchs, some men are made eunuchs by others, and some men make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And scholars are in pretty widespread agreement that this probably was not a reference to self-castration so much as it was to uh, an adoption of a celibate lifestyle. But we still have kind of an acknowledgement and a recognition of the place and the value of uh, folks in society who did not align with the uh, sexual binary, the kind of standard uh, idea of, uh, of sexuality. 
And it's not, you know, these people are gross. They're, um, you know, let's get rid of them or, or let's ignore them. It's just acknowledging they have, they have a place, they have a role. Uh, and the one, and, and then Jesus goes on to say, this is a hard saying, not everybody can accept this. And the idea seems to be from the author of Matthew is that these folks are living an even higher law than the majority of, of y'all are going to be able to live. So, you know, we, you're not, you don't have to do that, but you know, if you can good on you. Um, and I, and I think that kind of shears pretty closely to Paul's approach that everybody should be celibate, uh, or he would, he would love it if everybody could be celibate, but he recognizes that not everybody has that gift. And then within early Judaism, we have a recognition of multiple different sexual identifications, uh, where they have, uh, folks who are <clears throat> born with ambiguous genitalia and they have a, a term for, um, for such folks, folks who are born with, uh, a, identify a certain way, but come puberty, the expected changes don't take place. Uh, there are a handful of different categories, but these are acknowledged within early Judaism as well. And, and again, it's not, uh, they're not saying, ooh, gross, get these people away from us. They're saying this is the reality of, of humanity, of, of being born human, of, of human sexuality. And so they are carving out uh, roles for them in society. And these are talking about uh, what kinds of laws that normally apply to men and to women might apply to somebody who... Uh, ends up castrating themselves or someone whose um, who's sexual maturation uh, doesn't go the way it's supposed to or the way it's anticipated. They're saying, okay, well, for these people, this is what, you know, this is how they're supposed to live these, these laws and regulations. And it's not like they're held up. They're not pedestalized. It's not saying we have to honor these people. For the most part, they actually had more restrictions placed upon them, but it was a recognition that this is just a reality and we just have to conform to this reality. Uh, and that I think is something that is that a lot of folks are failing to do today by suggesting that this is an all, all an ideology, that this is just, uh, you know, that people are just being uh, basically convinced to identify this way. Uh, when the reality is trans people have existed across thousands and thousands of years across countless different societies, everywhere where we have documentation, um, robust documentation of sexual identities, we find trans people. And so this is just a reality of the human experience. And unfortunately, opposition to that has become an identity marker, has become a, a line in the sand that people are drawing in order to structure power and values in their favor, primarily for uh, the sake of elections. Um, and it's causing untold harm to people who are living out those realities of the human experience in a way that the people doing, uh, the people um, coming up with and spreading all this rhetoric don't have to experience. Um, and so it's another situation where people are putting the value of these ideologies as identity markers over and above and directly against the lives of 
people who are in minoritized and marginalized groups. And, and it's just tragic. And yeah, as uh, Jesus doesn't say an awful lot about these things, but to the degree that Jesus was for the little ones uh, and for the least of these and for uh, the folks who are the poor and the needy and the downtrodden to the degree that Jesus cared about them. I, I think we have to include these folks. Um, if Jesus were counterfactual history is always problematic. It gets way very complex in a very big hurry. But if, uh, if Jesus knew about these circumstances anciently, um, I think a lot of people would be surprised by what he might say. It's a really powerful segment, Dan. Brought me some to tears, actually, as you just put vocabulary to this. You have a gift of vocabulary that brings, it really humanizes this experience. So you've got this great mind, but you also have this heart that can bring, you know, just moving, you know, words to how to do better. Um, listeners often talk about, you know, Elder Uchtdorf's quote, how often does the Holy Spirit tried to tell us something we needed to know, but couldn't get past the massive iron gate of what we thought we already knew. And that's sort of my journey to understand LGBT people. And he didn't use the word dogma there, but I think of your definition of dogma. And Michael Wilcox, one of my institute teachers says, in some matters, it's better to be intellectually uncertain Rather than superficially sure, this will leave us a great deal to be certain about while maintaining the humility to learn. And often learning for me, listeners, is I get really uncomfortable. And I used to just say, well, that's the spirit leaving and Satan entering, and I need to withdraw from that space. And often it's the repenting I need to do within myself as I recognize sexism, homophobia, um, racism that's sort of innocently perhaps maybe that's too graceful is coming to me um that i need to do to fully and i'm not at the finish line to be a better disciple of christ so um and i recognize our church was restored in a culture um this beautiful unique doctrine of our restoration we still had a culture about our feelings about blacks you mentioned slavery about women about lgbtq people and others marginalized groups so we're kind of in this process of thinking what is, you know, culture that was just existing and the dogma or the attitudes of the day and what is actually doctrine. And I hope that we do better in a lot of these spaces and better support LGBTQ people. Um, what you said about trans people is powerful. And listeners, that episode, I was trying to remember off the top of my head is episode 631, Dave and Cami Martin. And he has Swire syndrome. So there actually is sort of, once they got to the bottom of this, there was a biological understanding for the long-term gender dysphoria. But don't dismiss other experiences because there's not this biological understanding why someone just, uh, my feeling is give the same grace to everybody. Um, perhaps the science data, which is our friend, at some point will understand why someone has felt gender dysphoria. I like your point. This isn't a new thing. This isn't Satan confusing his children at the last days. There may be some short-term experimentation. There may be some people, this is a phase and it really isn't long-term gender dysphoria, but I think we do what Dan's inviting us to do, give grace. Um, we're kind of coming about the last segment. Um, any You could talk about anything you want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I don't know that... Uh... 
Nothing is really springing to mind at the moment. There are, uh, there are a handful of projects that I'm working on that I'm really excited about. Sure. That's, uh, yeah, if you'd like to, uh, well, one of them is, uh, is a book I'm editing, um, that hopefully will come out next year. Uh, it's, it'll be called Mormonism in five minutes. It is, comes from a series published by Equinox Press, uh, which is a, an academic press in the UK. And the series is called Religion in Five Minutes, where uh, each volume focuses on a different religious tradition. And it has about 75 to 80 essays within it. And each of them, uh, the, the title of the essay is a question one might expect to hear in a 100 level course about the given tradition. And then each essay is about 750 to a thousand words answering that question in a very conversational tone. So there are no citations. There are no footnotes. Each essay is designed to be read in about five minutes. Uh, And so there are several volumes that are out there already. And there are several more forthcoming uh, that address a bunch of different religion religious traditions, including Buddhism and atheism uh, and African diaspora uh, traditions and things like that. And so mine is Mormonism in five minutes and uh, gathering essays right now and even writing a few of my own. But but um, I hope re- uh, listeners, almost said readers for some reason, which doesn't make a ton of sense, but I, I hope listeners uh, who might find something like that of, uh, of value and interest will keep their eyes open for that. Uh, and then I'm, I'm also working on uh, a trade book that uh, will probably be early 2005 that it comes out. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, it's basically going to be uh, a, a book treatment of the same kinds of things I talk about on my social media channels. So I'll, it'll be about 12 to 15 chapters. Each chapter will be addressing another very common um, ideology or talking point that gets shared online um ideas about hell ideas about satan ideas about the mark of the beast uh ideas about the lgbtq plus community uh ideas about abortion in the bible uh ideas about inerrancy uh all that kind of stuff i'm i'm very excited to be writing this book and and uh, i'm having a lot of fun writing it as well i'm used to academic writing where i have to be very dry um and my agent keeps telling me to um to make it more like what i am doing on social media so it's it's uh, uh a lot more fun writing this book than it has been writing uh writing other books don't have a title for it yet but rest assured i'll be letting everybody know as soon as i uh as soon as i do uh so anybody who's ever wanted to cite uh, some of the things that I've said uh, on social media, but uh, doesn't feel comfortable with with uh, putting TikTok in a, <laughs> a footnote or something like that. There will be a book coming out shortly, so I'll, I'll uh, I will be committing those arguments to text, uh, and so I'm I'm really looking forward to that. That uh, that's kind of a new thing for me that um, that I've really enjoyed so far, and I'm looking forward to uh, to finishing. And, um, yeah, that, those, those are the two big things I've been focusing on recently. I, I just got back from leading a tour in Israel Israel, and Palestine, which was, uh, which was a lot of fun, had a great group, uh, with me. Almost everybody knew me from social media and the people who don't were dragged along by the people who did. (laughs) So it was a great group. They had a very similar sense of humor to me. Uh, we got along well and, and it was a lot of fun. 
Uh, also had a great local guide who was with me. When you go on tours in Israel, it's uh, the the law that that they need a, a local guide uh, there with you. Uh, and we were assigned a, a phenomenal uh, guide named Nave that I'm going to be requesting from now on. But this is going to be something I do annually. That's cool. Uh, so I'm 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 already cooking up what we're going to do for for the next one. I've got some some friends who. Uh, who are running some excavations there who've invited me to, to swing by if I'm in the neighborhood again. So I think I'm going to work more visits to archeological excavations into the, the tour next year. So, so anybody who's, uh, who's looking for an opportunity to go learn a lot more than you normally would on a, on a tour of uh, Israel, Palestine. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm uh, getting into the, <laughs> getting into to that I don't want to say business, but I'm I'm starting to do that. I'm enjoying it quite a bit, and I'm looking forward to doing that more in the future as well. So those are those are the things that have been on my mind a lot lately. I just love, you know, I sort of don't think you're at the finish line for the way you're going to contribute. I think you know that, and I love that you're riding, and I think that's just good for all of us. Um, your life is very different than you thought it would be <laughs> at 30, and you're some of you that are in this long academic road wondering is it all going to be worth it? How's it all going to turn out? And I'm sure you felt some of those feelings. There's a financial component. There's, is this, you know, but I just think your personal story gives hope for others that, you know, doors open that are unexpected. You're old for social media. I'm really old for social media, (laughs) but you've learned how to do that. And TikTok, I actually tried to TikTok listeners um, and I gave up on it. I, the last one I did, I was during COVID, I've got a mask on and announced I have COVID to my 50 followers and I've never posted since. So maybe they all thought I died, Dan. But no, they, they might be worried about you. Let, it, me ask um, you. let me ask you a question. In your yeah. About me, you've I've talked about your Democrat candidate. You ran for Utah mm-hmm. State House, Utah State Senate. You lost, mm-hmm. but you significantly ran against kind of historical numbers that you did better than other candidates had done. I, you know, this is you speaking as a Latter-day Saint Democrat, if you're okay doing that, to younger yeah. Latter-day Saints that are, you know, not in the Republican Party, that are independent and Democrat, or in congregations where they feel like they just don't, you know, so much of that rhetoric from the political party, from both sides, it could be true of a, a very liberal congregation if you're not. But mm-hmm. sometimes that, I'm going to just go with the, you know, the, the political rhetoric comes into our meetings and sometimes that's really hard, maybe even for older um, Latter-day Saints, particularly I think you have Gen Z, Gen and millennials. What would just, and some of these probably reached out to you and say, Dan, how do you do it? Um, Stay in the church and navigate sort of the complexities of sometimes our culture around religion. Any thoughts to those listeners that actually want to stay, but just wonders if, wonder if people like them are welcome. Sometimes it can feel like like people like us are not welcome, and most of the time that's on Twitter, where uh, at least that's where I uh, feel that way. It, it's interesting what kinds of um, ecosystems the different social media platforms are, uh, and Twitter. Well, one, I tend to be more political on Twitter anyway, uh, but that's that's where I see the most pushback from uh, from members of the church who who don't appreciate how I approach a lot of these questions, but there are, well, 
I'll put it this way. I joined the church in, in what you might call the Mormon diaspora. I was not in Utah. Um, and I have spent the, let's see, the served a mission, uh, did graduate school in some different country, different state. Uh, I've spent an awful lot of time outside of Utah. And the time that I've spent in Utah has been around overwhelmingly like-minded people. In fact, even working in church headquarters, I was working with people who were highly, highly educated, had a lot of international experience, and in many ways were, were like-minded uh, in how we thought about um, social and economic uh, and other issues. And so I've always found folks I could feel I belonged with in the church. So I feel like I have been fortunate and privileged to be able to be in spaces where I don't feel uh, unwanted. I don't feel like I don't belong. And when I find myself in those spaces, I, I am privileged enough that I can usually uh, either get out of them or I can, I can leverage some of, uh, some of uh, my bona fides in the church over and against them. So I think I'm, I'm pretty privileged in that regard. But there are, but those spaces do exist. And I, I feel for folks who can't find them or can't access them. Because I can imagine it, it's got to be uh, aggravating. It's got to be frustrating, particularly if you know it's your own household uh, is the space where you are not free to uh, to be yourself. Uh, and I think things are changing. Things are getting will get better, but as things get better, there will also be a recognition of that from the other side, which will cause digging in of heels and will cause pushback. Um, and yeah, it's kind of disappointing that I know some folks 2016, a lot of people's worlds changed in a lot of ways. And particularly when they saw how eager people, they considered friends, neighbors, people who were close to them, how eager such people were to overlook pretty significant uh, and horrific behavior and ideologies from someone who would become uh, the leader of our country for a time. And I know a lot of people suddenly felt unsafe in the pews, on the sidewalks, being around, knowing that they are among people who said, eh, I'm okay with somebody who likes sexually assaulting women. Not a big deal. That's hurt a lot of people, a lot of people who are very close to me. And it hurt me as well. And, uh, and I think there was something similar that happened when we were going through COVID and people realized they were in the pews and on the sidewalks and in the neighborhoods with folks who thought, eh, not worried if a bunch of people die uh, because, you know, we've, we've got this ideology. <sighs> Uh, and so those, those are, I consider those to be two pretty powerful sets of events and tragic events that kind of had a lot of people showing their cards, uh, particularly within the church. And that was devastating for a lot of people. And, and um, I can't fault anybody for deciding this was not for them. 
anymore in light of that kind of and that kind of, in light of that kind of stuff. But I have been fortunate enough to be around a lot of like-minded people, and I hope that those who are not are able to find those people. And for some of those people, it's it's they're not going to find them in the church, and uh, and that's our fault for not generating those spaces for them. So I try to generate those spaces to the degree I can. When, uh, uh, when I was asked to uh, be the gospel doctrine teacher last year, uh, I did everything I could to help people feel that was a, a safe space where they could share thoughts that might not be uh, correlated, that might not be uh, the kinds of thoughts they would share in any given uh, Sunday school classroom. And I know a lot of people really appreciated that. And I had a lot of people attending in my ward who normally don't attend Sunday school precisely because they don't feel safe in that space. Um, and so I think it's incumbent upon those of us who who enjoy uh, being able to occupy those spaces to try to spread that. I'm doing what I can. My um, my family asked me to to take a couple cycles off from politics, uh, so I'm uh, I'm enjoying that, and I'm having to turn down a lot of uh, invitations to uh, to participate in certain political events. Uh, but I hope that I'm increasing those spaces um, in other ways in my, my social media content and engagement. And from the feedback that I'm hearing it, um, it sounds like to some degree I am, which makes me hopeful for the future. A great answer. I love the principle of finding um, people that you can belong to, even if that's not in your ward, you might find other groups within our faith through online or through other different organizations that help. Cause I, a lot of you have a fundamental testimony of the restored church and the doctrine and the way you see Jesus um, and want to see more of Jesus, but you don't sometimes see that everywhere. And so I think you might do what Dan suggested is find other circles. And if you're in a point of privilege, um, like Dan is being, you know, what can you do in your circle of influence to help everybody feel included? But I think the principle is circle of influence. So we all need to do what we can do in our circle of influence. And if you don't have a podcast and don't have a big social media presence, that's okay. Um, just do what you can do in your circle of influence. That may be just family or friends or a ministering assignment or a common in church. And just do what you can do to help create Zion in the way you can and be at peace. You're doing the best you can. And God loves you. Um, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, Dan, in closing? Um, I don't think so. I, I think I got, uh, I got a lot off my chest today. Uh, I, I appreciate the, the questions and, the, uh, and the, their sincerity and, uh, and yeah, how, how probing a lot of them were not, not the normal podcast interview I do. <laughs> well, it just helps a lot of people. Your work helps a lot of people. And I'm really glad for where you are and what you're doing and the content you're creating. And, I just felt impressed, listeners. I wanted to connect more of you with Dan's content. So we'll link to all of his social media channels. It's under that M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N. Correct. Um, handle, but we'll still put it in the show notes as well as your Data Over Dogma podcast that my guess was continued to grow um, in listeners and, and will continue to scale. 
Hopefully. I, actually, I did think of one other thing Good. I, I wanted time. to share. Um, I appreciate that. So I, I had a thought as, uh, as you were discussing some of my background, I realized something that I would have assumed a long time ago and something that I have been, that has been <laughs> educated out of me by experience is the assumption that uh, someone who has the, the intelligence and the drive can't be held back from succeeding. Like, I think, I think some people look at, at where I've gotten to and imagine that it's inevitable that this happened. Like it could not have happened any other way, but I have been, I would not be where I am today if it were not for the generosity of the people around me. And so there's a lot more being fortunate and being lucky and being privileged that contributed to where I am today than my own capacity or my own intelligence or my own skill. And this was something that in the dark hours, because I spent, spent years thinking my academic career was over and I wasn't going anywhere with this. Uh, and that's, you know, I had failed in doing the whole thing. I got into these, uh, this field for. And through fits and starts, things happened. And I made, you know, two steps forward and one step back and two steps forward and one step back. And so when, when, when I look back at things, I, I don't want somebody to, well, I, I don't want people to think that they have, you know, they're, they're convinced of their, their capacity and their skill. And so nothing can stop them. Uh, because there are an awful lot of people with the capacity and with the skill for whom things just didn't go their way through no fault of their own. And so I, I, I don't know if I'm making people, I don't, I don't know if that's, that's good. helpful or if that's depressing. I think, it's, but, I think it's helpful. But when I, when I look back, I attribute where I am far more to the people around me who helped me than to my own um, hard work and diligence. You know, if, if hard work always um, ended up with success, we would have a lot more millionaire women living in, in Africa. Um, I totally butchered that quote. I don't remember the exact quotes. <laughs> Good but, um, but yeah, I am here because I have been very fortunate and I have been very privileged and I have been around a lot of people who have stuck their necks out in order to help me. I am not here because I am just that good at all of this. Um, so, so yeah, helpful. again, I don't know if that's hopeful or depressing, um, I, but I, I, I felt impressed to, to make that, uh, to just make that clarification. I think it's just so thoughtful and so self-aware and just helpful for others that may not have. I love the quote about African women millionaires. So you're self-aware and it helps all of us to be more self-aware and grateful for um, the things that happen in our life. So listeners act on the impressions you felt from Dan, um, how we can all do better. I'm grateful for his unique ministry, his clear voice, his thoughtful understanding of the past, how that applies to supporting marginalized groups, how, the Bible doesn't need to be a weapon. It can actually be used to bring us together and how politics sometimes doing just the opposite and be aware of that. Um, Zion to me is coming together as the same human family to lift the burdens of others. 
And um, sometimes things fight against that that we can work to solve. So Dan McClellan, Richard Osler, signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>